listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast with your host, Andy Plymer. Bringing you up-to-date coaching concepts from the world of rugby. Sharing ideas to make the game better. Okay, welcome to episode number 75 of the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. I'm your host, Andy Plymer, and joining me today is Jeremy Holt. Jeremy is an occupational psychologist, leadership coach, and facilitator from England who works with high-performance teams in business, sport, and the military. His company, the Center for Team Excellence, specializes in applying behavioral science to develop great teams and has been working with the University of Sussex in an, in an attempt to understand the psychological factors that make teams great. He's also a grassroots coach with 15 years experience and it's a pleasure to have him on the show. So welcome, Jeremy. Hi, Andy. Thanks very much. Thanks very much for inviting me on. Um, you know, it's really great to join this uh, long list of uh, very esteemed people from rugby. And uh, uh, I, I listened to the podcast with Stuart Lancaster um, that you did just recently, and yeah. I thought it was fantastic. So there's a lot to live up to. Um, <laughs> awesome. but, uh, looking well, forward to it. Yeah, well, you're on the top of the list now. Um, so so <laughs> there you go. Um, yeah, well, thanks for that. Yeah, and um, yeah, that was the one with Stuart was great. And uh, he only had 30 minutes and... I reckon I could have talked to him for for three hours, you know, but uh, that's uh, yeah, got a lot out of that. Yeah, he's fantastic, uh, and and I think you know um, when when people when history kind of looks back at it, yeah. My hunch is that he'll end up being England coach again at some point yeah, because of all the be things he's learned from his experiences, and and he'll be the guy who brings the World Cup back. Oh, nice! Big call, big call. I like it. Yeah, yeah. He just has to do that. All right, <laughs> cool. So, so what's your rugby backstory? How'd you get into it, and you know, how'd you start your your coaching journey fifteen years ago? Yeah, so um, I played rugby at school. Uh, I went to a school in Hampshire called Church's College, yep. and uh, you know, I was pretty passionate about rugby. Um, and uh, without, you know, I think I would describe myself as as a, a sort of a big fish in a very small pond. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I played at the school, I captained the school. Um, I did a bit of county rugby um, for Hampshire, but didn't really enjoy it. I think that was when I realized that perhaps I wasn't as good as, uh, as I thought I would be. Um, I was to listening all of us, actually, or most of us. <laughs> I was listening actually to, uh, there's just a podcast come out from uh, uh, Magic Academy. Mm. And with uh, so it's a, a, a interview with Wayne Smith, yeah. and he was talking about sending a player um, uh, some photo, a photograph of a jigsaw puzzle. One was a very simple jigsaw puzzle, and the other one was a really really complicated jigsaw puzzle. And he was interested to see whether the player would take on the challenge. You know, they had to choose which jigsaw to do. Mm. Whether they take on the challenge of the difficult jigsaw puzzle or the or, or just go for the easy one yeah. as a kind of. Um, a measure of their growth mindset mm. and as i was listening to this i was thinking well you know back then i'd definitely have taken the easy the easy <laughs> jigsaw puzzle you know yeah. i don't think i'd have uh, pushed myself that hard yeah. um but i enjoyed rugby a lot at school and then uh when when i left school um uh, went off to university i actually didn't play 
So uh, mm. I did a little bit of club rugby just before I went off and then I didn't play at university and then I went and worked in London. So I came back to rugby sort of in my late 20s mm. um, and then I played through till I was about 40. Yeah. Um, and I was playing, uh, you know, uh, not even first team rugby in the, the club that I played in. So, you know, certainly not a stellar player, a bit of a sketchy background as a player, really. But <laughs> what I really enjoyed about the whole experience is, uh, you know, for, for a couple of years, I was part of a team which was just the most incredible experience. Mm. Great bunch of guys. Um, we played some really good rugby at our level. We won an awful lot of matches and we had a lot of fun together. Mm. Um, so I guess my, my rugby memories um, from playing are around those kinds of experiences. It's about, And I think that's probably the vast majority of us. Uh, you know, it's about that experience of mm. um, being part of a team, belonging to something, that camaraderie and, and that kind of friendship. Um, so then, you know, time kind of caught up with me. And when, when I realized that I was spending more on physio bills than I was on, on clubs, <laughs> subs um i thought it was probably time to stop and i had a young family um on the way as well mm. um and then when my son uh, was five i took him along to my local club i thought it's time to introduce him to the to the great game of course and i think like a lot of a lot of dads on the touchline um you know i just didn't step back quickly enough when they said who would like to get involved and help with the coaching? <laughs> um, so I had a cycle going through coaching my son and his age group from um, five up to under 18s. Mm. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it's funny. I, when I listen to uh, people talk about how to coach and how not to coach, and especially the way that, you know, I think coaching is evolving over the years and our mm. view about what coaches should do. Um, and I look back and I just sort of hang my head in shame. And I think those poor, those poor kids that I coach, you know, <laughs> I think pretty much everything we did, we were, you know, it's very old school. So, yeah. so yeah, you're not alone. <laughs> no, I know, I know. And, um, so I did that. And then when my son went off to university, I had to decide whether I wanted to carry on. So that's when I stepped back down an age group. Mm. And so I've been coaching the team that I currently coach. I was sort of an assistant coach for a year, and then I've been coaching them for two years. Right. So they've just finished under-16s. Cool. Well, we'll definitely uh, touch on that because that's a pretty cool story um, with that team. Um, what about what about psychology? How did how'd you get into that? What was the, what was the kind of pathway to, to becoming a, uh, a psychologist and the work you're doing now? Yeah. Yeah, so I did a psychology degree. Um, after the psychology degree, I decided the one thing I didn't want to be was a psychologist because mm. pretty much then, you know, you're either a clinical psychologist or an educational psychologist. I didn't fancy that. Um, so I went and worked in advertising in, in London for a few years. And um, uh, and then I think I gradually realized that advertising and me were not meant for each other. Mm. Uh, and there was an opportunity to uh, go and do a master's degree in this emerging field, which was occupational psychology or organizational psychology, business psychology, whatever you call it, yeah. um, at a pretty decent university. So I thought I'd take that opportunity. So I, I, I quit work. Um, I went and studied full time for a year and then I went through and um, after that I got a job and went through the chartering process, which is a kind of professional um, qualification that, that they give in, in the UK. So you have to have supervised practice in order to, right. to get through the chartering. Um, so that was actually now quite a long time ago. So that was back in 1993. Um, so I've been working as a psychologist ever since then. I set up my business um, in 1999. Um, um, and I did, uh, to start with, I was doing all the kinds of stuff that occupational psychologists do. So that's a lot of assessment, designing psychometric tests, all those kinds mm. of tortures that we put people through. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started to get um, more interested in 
teams what was happening in teams and um and leadership and i was asked by a client if i wanted to get involved and in, in, in pitch for some uh, leadership training um so this was a big investment company in the city so i thought yeah that would be a cool thing to do mm. uh, when i did that course went really badly um so uh so you learned a lot yeah, exactly. So yeah. isn't that when you learn your most? Yeah, I mean, exactly. we debriefed with people after the course and said, you know, what is it that's what <laughs> we thought you got this. And then it looks like, uh, you know, in the evaluations afterwards, some some people are actually viewed as worse leaders after the training than they had been before. <laughs> um, and um, and what they all said was actually what happens is that they go off on training and they go through this experience and then and they're really fired up to go back and be this kind of leader. Mm. Um and um, and then they get back to reality of their teams, and everyone goes, "Oh, don't worry, he's been on a course. Yeah, you know? yeah. just in two weeks, and two everything will go back more." So it was the resistance to change within the system which was stopping them from becoming more effective leaders. Mm, mm. And so I started to get really interested in that, um, and that's when I started looking at teams and and uh, getting involved in working with teams. So I've been doing that now for for, for quite a long time. Um, most of my clients, certainly originally, they were all in business, so it's sort of corporate clients. Um, traveled to a lot of countries, done a lot of um, global leadership training programs, um, and then around about 2007, I got an opportunity to do some training on high-performance teams for senior officers in the British military mm-hmm. at the UK Defence Academy. So I started doing that. So that was very cool. That was running workshops for like two-star officers. So they're sort of, um, uh, sorry, one-star officers. So they're kind of like um, colonels and, and brigadiers, that sort of level. Um, and then that spawned into doing some work with more senior teams. So two and three-star officers. So these are now generals and admirals. Um, and these are the guys who are running parts of um, the defence capability in the mm. UK. So like Joint Helicopter Command, the Surgeon General. Um, I even did work with the Chaplain General, who's in charge of all of the kind of religious services for mm-hmm. for uh, the defense across the three services. Um, so got lots of interesting experiences from, from, from doing that and starting to see how the kind of work that I was doing not just applied in a, um, a sort of business environment where, let's be honest, if, if you mess it up, the worst thing that happens is that um, you lose a bit of money. Mm. Um, so the pressure's not so intense. Um, but um, uh, take it across into a, a defense environment and, and you mess it up and people die. Mm. So they take it really seriously. And, and so you've got some people who, although this is not the idea that we have of the military, they are actually very receptive to new ideas and, mm. and, and, and you know, really genuinely trying to improve what they do. Um, so, so that was cool. Um, yeah. And then the sport piece came in sort of, um, let's think, it was probably about six years ago. So two things happened at, at more or less the same time. So one was that I felt that there was a gap in the research around actually what were the dynamics of what was happening in teams that meant that some teams really excelled whilst mm. other teams you know, failed to get that synergy. Um, so I, I approached um, a guy called uh, Rupert Brown, who's a professor at Sussex University. And he's one of the leading experts in the world on group processes. Um, and I said, can we do some research? Can I, you know, how can we collaborate? Um, so we started a research program. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, so that happened. And uh, at about the same time, I also met a guy called Anton Oliver. Um, so Anton, for, for those who don't know, played for the All Blacks. <laughs> for 13 years, um, he started off being a contemporary of Jonah Lomu, 
uh, and then he finished his career in 2007 um, in the World Cup quarterfinal where the where the All Blacks lost. Mm. Um, he was involved in the All Blacks during that transformational period. For sure. Um, anyone who's read the book Legacy mm. will, will, will kind of know about that. So that's sort of around about 2003 to 2007. They totally transformed themselves. So talking to Anton, I started to appreciate that um, the kind of stuff that I've been doing with the military was exactly the kind of stuff that the All Blacks have been doing as well. Mm. Um, so that sort of started getting me involved in in, in sport. Um, then the research at Sussex um, became very sports focused. So we actually ended up uh, researching some sports teams and that op- uh, gave me the opportunity to start working with some sports teams. Okay, cool. cool. Um, yeah, we, we did a bit of a, a primer interview um, or chat before this, this episode and we, we talked a lot about, well, about a lot of things. But one of the things was uh, um, the concept of a sports, psycholo- sports psychology approaches uh, in elite sport versus grassroots sport. Um, it's pretty, sports psychology is a super, super general term and I'm sure, you know, yeah. that, that's, there's, there's so much more to it. Um, I, you know, has has a guess that the majority of listeners are in that grassroots uh, environment. So, so what from your your experience and you know research, what the the difference, or is there a lot of difference between uh, the approaches in elite sporting uh, to grassroots? So, I think that the <clears throat> focus of most sports psychologists in in elite sport is around individual preparation for performance moments. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it's it's kind of intrapsychic. It's what's going on inside your head. So, that might be around how you maintain your attention. It might be around how you prepare for games. It might be around using visualization and imagery. Um, and it tends to work with <clears throat> an individual um, being. Uh, uh, working individually with a psychologist. Right. So if you contrast that with my background, so what we do in occupational psychology is we intervene in organizations in four levels. So first of all, we look at the whole organization and what could you do there to improve its functioning. Mm-hmm. Then we'll look at the team level. Then we look at the interpersonal level in terms of relationships between individuals. And then we'll look at the intrapsychic level, which is really where sports psychology sort of, sort of plays out. Mm-hmm. But it's quite an exciting time, I think, for, for sports psychology. Um, and, and I think that there's the potential for it to start to trickle down. And the big change really has been that, um, and, and I think Dan Carter summed this up really well in an interview he gave, I think it was a couple of years ago. And he said something along the lines of that when he started um, playing for the, uh, when he started playing rugby, uh, you saw a sports psychologist uh, and everybody thought there was something wrong with you. Mm. So by the time he finished, you, if you didn't see a sports psychologist, everybody thought <laughs> something wrong with you. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's, that, that's what's happened is that instead of it being a problem solving kind of intervention, it's now seen as just part of the training that you mm. should be doing. So it's like a skills so you're coach. Working physically on your, on your body, mm. you're working tactically and technically so that you can execute and you can understand the decisions you have to make. And, and the, the, the third sort of um, uh, leg of the stool, if you like, is are you mentally capable to, capable to do that or are you going to have an emotional hijack? Mm. And there are some really quite simple things that you can do with players that, that have an impact on that, um, uh, uh, you know, in, in terms of their own mindset. Um, so, so I think that what we'll see is that that starts to cascade down and, and starts to become, you know, more accessible. Um, but the kind of focus that I tend to have is is obviously around how do group dynamics play out in mm. um, in in team sports, um, and what can we do 
uh, about that and what are the simple steps that coaches can take in order or any leader actually in any circumstance but how can how can we make this simple enough that you as a, as a regular um you know grassroots dad or mum volunteer could understand some steps you can take in order to improve the group dynamics um, uh, within the teams that, that you're playing with. And obviously, you know, there's some reasons why you should want to do that, which which I'm sure we'll go on to talk about. Yeah, well, let's, let's have a look at that now. Um, you know, if, if we're talking grassroots, often we're talking age grade, we're talking adolescence. Um, given given what we know about brain development um, in, 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 in teenage uh, kids and and also like the probably a bit of a time delay between girls and boys as well. What what are some of the areas we should be focusing on to make sure we're creating an environment that's uh, that's positive and enjoyable and and uh, cohesive? Yeah. So, I mean, to start with, I think there's a lot of changes in coaching which I'm seeing, which I'm learning from. So, mm. I know that um, you're you're um, seeing uh, Rusty Earnshaw. Uh, Next week, is it? He's yeah, coming. yeah, yeah. He's, uh... yeah. So people like Rusty and John Fletcher, are, are, I think, are um, really challenging coaches and making it easier for coaches to think about how do, how do kids learn? So, you know, what is, what is that sort of pedagogical process of, mm. by which people acquire knowledge and particularly skill acquisition when we think about physical skills as well as mental skills around decision making so that's kind of like about challenge-led learning and it's about to contextualize learning so i can learn something in one context move me to a different context so i can be great in a drill move me to a match guess what it doesn't apply Mm, um and obviously they're looking at things like gamification so i think that's one thread I think the second thread has been around the sort of player-coach relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, so people starting to have a better realization of the potential damage or impact that you can have as a coach um, by uh, the way in which you um, treat players in your relationship with those players. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and, and what we're seeing is, you know, there's a number of shifts, I would say. So, you know, from dictator to facilitator mm-hmm. from a source of knowledge to being a stimulant for someone else to think for the mm-hmm. players to think from being sort of the wise guy in control to being empowering and and from being you know sometimes i'm probably just describing myself here um, but you know kind of dominant and a bit egotistical and and uh, having my own emotional hijacks and getting angry about things um to to trying to be much more uh, respectful and accepting. So, so I think all of those really, uh, you know, I think they're coming from different origins. Those two things are coming from different origins and they have an impact on, um, or, or there's a recognition that adolescents are not many adults. Mm. Uh, you know, their brain has not developed to an extent that they think like adults. Um, and then I think the third area that's been interesting has been parent engagement. So, looking at how can coaches help parents to engage in a more constructive way with their kids and the conversations they have around the sport. So from being a passionate fan who's only really interested in winning to being a passionate supporter. Um, I went and watched the uh, South Africa-Japan game in the 2015 uh, Rugby World Cup. Mm. Uh, if you remember Japan. Massive. Famously, 
did just one in the last minute. And what was interesting was that the South African fans who were in the stadium were all livid and they were leaving because they were fans. They were fanatics. Mm. They didn't see it as their job to stay and support mm. the, the Springboks right to the end. And, and I see that play out in parents sometimes where, you know, what, what they want is, is to see victories and, 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 and um, the, the support of the child is, is, is less important. So I think that's mm. changing. But all of these changes in coaching are really focused on the relationship between adults, that's either coaches or parents, mm -hmm. and players. Um, and yet we know that for adolescents, this is not really where the action's happening. It's in peer-to-peer -peer relationships mm -hmm. that's the driving force for their development, and it's what they care about uh, at that um, stage in their life. And, and if we're going to understand that, it's helpful to look at some of the neurological structures and functions uh, that are going on in the brain and, and how they develop during that, that period of life. Mm. Um, so if you look at all humans, we're, we're sort of deeply pre-programmed through natural selection to notice and respond to social exclusion and social inclusion. Mm. So we experience social exclusion as a threat. There's been 230,000 generations of human beings and only 13 of those generations in a post-industrialized society. So before the Industrial Revolution, mm. people grew up in a small town. They lived in a small town. They grew old in the town. They died in the town. And if they were excluded, then they didn't survive. Mm. And so those who were, uh, those who, who, who were tuned to recognizing when they were getting excluded were the ones that survived. And that's, that's, that's the evolution of, of the social brain, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, so what happens when people uh, experience social exclusion, and here I'm thinking particularly about peer exclusion, um, is that we interpret it as a threat. Mm. So it triggers a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex, um, which is sometimes referred to as the suffering zone of the brain, mm -hmm. um, because it's also the part of the brain that's triggered when you experience physical pain, and it causes your body to release cortisol and noradrenaline. So we experience exclusion in the same way as we experience any other painful situation uh, it's a threat to us it makes us want to fight flight or or freeze mm. um, and the opposite happens when we experience inclusion so when we experience inclusion our brain releases a, a chemical called oxytocin which is the happiness hormone mm -hmm. it's the uh, natural opioid which makes you feel good about yourself and makes you feel joyful um, so that's for everybody that that process is happening. And it's why um, we get stressed when we feel excluded and why we are very motivated to feel included. But in adolescence, so that's in the period of, um, you know, from puberty through to about 24, the social brain is developing. Um, and that's happening in the prefrontal cortex. Um, and there's two main bits to that which are happening. One is um, called mentalizing. So this is uh, the point at which uh, you start to understand that other people see things different to you and mm -hmm. you start to be able to interpret how they will respond to situations. And, and the second element is around the development of our 
uh, our self-concept and defining our membership of, of, of social groups. Um, mm. So those experiences that adolescents have of being included and excluded have a big impact on the way in which their, their brain is developing. Mm. Um, and something else is also happening. So there's uh, the part of your brain which uh, controls your emotions, the limbic part of the brain, mm-hmm. develops earlier than the part of the brain which um, uh, controls your social thinking. Right. So the pre- so the limbic brain, so putting this into layman's language, um, uh, Steve Peters is model the chimp paradox. Yeah. Um, Steve talks about the chimp who sits inside your head and says, go on, go on. <laughs> He's annoyed yeah. you. Go yeah. on, punch him or, yeah. you know, whatever it is. But it's that sort of emotional hijack. Mm. Um, that part of your brain is mature from the age of around about 12, mm. saying, so you've got a fully grown chimp in your head. But the human part of the brain, as, as, mm. as Peters would describe it, the bit that regulates you and control you is still immature. Mm. And so it's unable to control um, those emotions. Right. So what's happening for adolescents is kind of what's happening for adults, but it's writ large. And, uh, and it becomes hugely significant in, the, in, in uh, uh, the, their development. Um, so there's a lot of processing that's going on in the teenage brain, and, and which might surprise you. But um, most of it is social. Mm. So they're spending a lot of time thinking about where do they fit in socially. Um, And actually, they're doing that using different parts of the brain to adults. So it's not that they've got a reference system that they can sort of draw on memories, that they're learning it for for the first time. So so why does that matter? So um, I think it matters because all of that is playing out on the sports pitch. Mm. Um, And for lots of children, sport is... um, a, a really important uh, opportunity for them to uh, learn uh, uh, social skills and for them to get that sense of belonging and inclusion that, that means that their body's releasing oxytocin and they mm. feel safe as opposed to feeling under threat. Um, and in, I, I did a calculation. So for the, the under-16s team I coach, um, in 2018, I calculated that we, did, we spent 330 hours together. Mm. Uh, so that's uh, 41 uh, working days, if you mm. want to think of it like that, or eight yeah. weeks. So it's actually a huge, and I don't think we overdo it. You know, I think no. training as much as some teams, it's a, it's, it's a huge amount of time that um, uh, uh, players are spending with coaches and therefore a great opportunity to have a, a positive impact on them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and when you put it in those terms, it's it's massive and we can't, we can't underplay uh, how important that is. So I guess the question then is, uh, you know, what can coaches do about that? Mm. Um, uh, what kind of approaches will be helpful? And I think whilst the neurology tells us a bit about the brain structure, we need to start looking back to psychology and in particular social psychology to understand mm. the function of, of what's going on. So what are the processes that are influencing uh, whether people feel included or whether they feel excluded. Um, and there's actually been a lot of research in this uh, with an approach which is called the social identity approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the social identity approach does is it says, it looks at who you are and how you define who you are. And it explains that part of who you are 
comes from your genetics, uh, your childhood experiences and that's a fairly static part of you which um, really comes to the fore when you're just on your own or interacting with just one other person but then layered around that and equally important is what they call your social identity so that's the part of you that's defined by your membership of different social groups um, and that is dynamic and it's constantly emerging and obviously, we categorize ourselves as belonging to lots of different social groups. Mm. Um, and some of them are very important to us, and some of them are not very important to us. Yeah, so when we look at successful teams, what we find is that those teams have a strong identity. Mm. And so if you flip that round and think about it from the player's perspective, that means that the players are identifying with the team, that mm. me being a member of the team is becoming part of their self-concept, their sense of who they are. And it means that they start to think about who are we, rather than just who am I mm. um, so if you were to uh, go and talk to someone who played for the All Blacks or Saracens or any of these really successful elite teams um, that sense of being a member of the team has become an important part of the players uh, sense of themselves uh, an important part of their identity so in in a sense then leadership is about facilitating the creation of a strong identity within a team and taking that story and, and bringing it to life. And, and that's what great coaches do as well, is that they create opportunities to create a narrative about what it means to belong to this team mm. um, uh, so that players start to really emotionally engage in it. Uh, and, and there are lots of positives that come, come from that. Oh, that's great. Yeah, no, it's... Uh... You know, lots of examples there that you've given, and uh, I'm sure listeners are thinking of other teams where, uh, you know, they 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 just achieve higher, greater than the sum of their parts, uh, and you know, no doubt a lot of that's due to that connection, that peer to peer, and wanting to play for each other. Um, you've, like I mentioned in the in the intro, uh, you've you've also been involved in a, a fairly extensive study uh, with with the University of Sussex on, on this topic. Um, what, what's a bit of a, a description of that study and, and what were some of the, the key findings from it? Yeah, so um, the the research uh, program lasted for three years. Uh, it was uh, a PhD of a guy called uh, Will Thomas. Mm -hmm. um, it involved uh, researching. So we looked at sports teams and, and what we were interested in was what is the impact of identity on performance in sports teams mm -hmm. and, and what motivates people to identify with those teams? So in the sample, we had 52 different teams, uh, 528 players mm -hmm. um, from 14 sports and three countries, um, ranging from elite Olympic teams right through to uh, grassroots teams. So a real broad cross-section. Um, and so the first part of the study was looking at what impact does having a strong team identity have on performance. And we were really shocked by what we discovered. So what, what the study showed uh, um, was that if you, well, a simple way to explain this, if you take the 20% of teams with the strongest identities mm -hmm. and compare them with the 20% of teams with the weakest identities, mm -hmm. there's a performance difference between those two groups. And the performance difference is 53%. Wow. So we're not talking about a marginal gain here by having mm. a strong identity we're talking about a massive game uh, we're talking about the sort of things that explains why teams which uh, you would say uh, you know on paper don't look like they've got the best players mm. still manage to win and then win and then win and then win 
Um, the second part of the study then looked at what motivates people to identify with um, teams. Um, so what are the component parts of that strong identity? And, and that piece of the research found five sort of foundational beliefs. Um, and these five beliefs accounted for 89% of the variance. So basically, that's almost all of it. So almost mm. all of what's going on in terms of whether you identify with the team or not comes down to do you have five beliefs um, that are shared across the team? Yeah. And that's the place where coaches can get involved. So what we've done is we took a lot of that psychobabble and mumbo jumble and we turned it into a, a simple model. And that's what we train to military leaders, to business leaders mm. and, and in uh, what we use in sports as well. And it's a model called TRIBE. And TRIBE is an acronym. It stands for Traditions, Relevance, uh, Identity, Belonging, and Effectiveness. So these are the five beliefs. Mm. So if in a team um, you can create some beliefs, some shared beliefs, so this is about setting up conversations and discussions and reaching some kind of agreements around, first of all, traditions. So what has made us successful in the past that we need to keep mm. that will help us to become successful in the future. So what is it that connects us across time? Um, the second is what, who cares about what we do and what about what we do matters? Mm. So what, what's important about this, which is beyond, you know, just me mm -hmm. uh, and almost certainly what's important in all of this, which is beyond winning. Mm -hmm. um, the, the third element is identity. So what's our magic? What makes us different? What gives us an edge? What's our trademark, if you like? Um, and in a sporting context, if you're mm. looking at high-performance teams, that needs to relate to something that helps you win on the pitch. Mm. The fourth element then is, uh, so we call it belonging. So that's about answering the question, what makes us feel that we belong to this team and what do we expect of each other? Mm. Yeah, um, that's key. And the fifth one is uh, uh, effectiveness. So what are the capabilities that we need to be successful? So if you take those five conversations, those five questions, and you reach a point where all of the players within your team would answer the question in a similar kind of way, then you know that you've got an identity which is uh, going to be strong, it's going to be clear, and it's going to be compelling for for the players within the team. Um, and so one of the things that we talk about, so I've been working with, uh, you know, I work with a number of elite level sports teams. Um, uh, and one of the things that we look at is the player journey. So what is the experience of a player when they first come and join your team? What are they told? What are the stories that are told mm. about blocking your team? What happens to them during their experience whilst they're in the team? So that's any touch point. So it could be training. It might be socials that you put together. Mm. It's obviously matches. It's then your post-match analysis. Um, and then ultimately, what happens when they leave that team? So, so what is the legacy that they believe that they're going to be leaving once they leave the team? Mm -hmm. So... So if that's a coherent kind of story, then um, and, it, and it doesn't have to be a complicated story, um, but if it's a coherent kind of story, then you get a lot of benefits which come from um, from having a strong identity. And incidentally, that, so our research was around performance, but it was building on um, other people's research. And there's, there's some really uh, interesting findings. So teams with strong identity, people learn more quickly. Mm, that's cool. Um, they're more innovative. They put mm. more effort in. 
um, they report high levels of well-being. They mm. talk about high levels of satisfaction. They show much greater levels of resilience. Um, and then some things go down. So their experience, their, the experience of stress is reduced. You see less politics and cliques and infighting. Mm. You see less selfishness. Um, people report lower intention to quit. And also, actually, uh, you know, uh, sickness absence goes down. Um, and there was some research which was published just a couple of months ago, which looked at um, uh, grassroots youth teams and uh, player retention. And what it showed was that teams with uh, stronger identities retained more players than teams with, with weaker identities. And, and actually, when you think about it, it kind of makes sense because what we're talking about here is creating a situation where I really, you know, I kind of fallen in love with my team, where it feels like a family to me, where mm. it feels home to me, yeah. where it feels safe, where I have friendships and I have trust and I feel respected. And so, of course, people are going to experience less stress. Of course, they're going to be more resilient because they feel if they make a mistake, well, that, you know, they're not going to be blamed and shamed. Mm. Um, of course, they're going to learn quicker because they're not having all these kind of anxiety hijacks because they're suddenly thinking, whoa, was that an exclusion that was going on? Yeah. You know, you know t teenagers are very brave in some ways uh, when it comes to drinking, driving too fast, smoking fags, you know, mm. that kind of stuff. But socially, actually, they're often quite timid. So you ask them to put their hand up and say something when you're doing a coaching mm. session yeah. and, 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 you know, be the first to speak in feedback. Um, that, that It's pretty hard to do sometimes. And yeah. It's usually the same old faces. So you're creating an environment where it feels very safe for them to be able to, to express themselves and, uh, and kind of be themselves. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Like, uh, I like the story because you're, you're, you're doing a lot of this as your profession where you're facilitating with groups and teams and things like that. Um, you're also involved in, in research, um, which you just talked about, but not only that, but you're doing it on the, on the field as well with your, with your U16 team, which I also mentioned in the introduction. So you, yeah. you're kind of doing full circle here. So you've, you've had, you, you had a, 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 t a tough season with that U16 team, but then you really, it became incredibly successful as well the following year. Um, and you were, uh, you know, employing a lot of these ideas in, into that process. Can you talk a little bit about that team and what the backstory was there and, and how you guys ended up in your second season? Yeah, sure. So I coach at Hove Rugby Club, which is just down on the south coast of England. Yeah. Um, and I coach, uh, so last season we were under 16, so I've been coaching the boys since they were under 15. Right. Um, I was a, an assistant coach at under 14, so I was kind of learning what was going on and trying to looking at the team. Um, and there had been some strife within the team. So various players had quit and gone on, you know, gone to other clubs and, mm -hmm. uh, uh, there'd been some difficulties. Um, so I think morale was a little bit low. Um, so when I took over in, um, uh, uh, under 15s, uh, the first, the first thing I did was I sort of did an assessment of where they were at. So a team is never a blank piece of paper. You're always mm. trying to figure out what's going on, you know, sure. what's good, what works, what doesn't. Um, I thought that from a rugby perspective, one of the big problems was that the style of rugby that they were playing didn't match their physical capabilities. Mm. So we, it was a forward sort of base style, but actually the boys were quite small and we had three, uh, no, at that point we had two county sprinters. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you just want to <laughs> get the ball wide to the gas men, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, but that wasn't how we were playing. 
Um, and uh, so I started looking at what uh, what did I think were the beliefs around this tribe model with, within the team, mm-hmm. um, and and where did I want it to 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 go to? So, you know, we started off. I looked at tradition. So, what were the things which had been successful in that team? So, it being very sociable, mm-hmm. um, and I think there was a good social network within the parents and the players. Um, they enjoyed dinners and tours. We went on an under-14s tour, um, which felt like it really clicked for the boys. Mm. So there was a tradition around that social element to, to do with the team. Right. Um, we looked at relevance. Um, so who, who cared about how they did? So that's obviously parents, the club, um, and, and the players themselves. Um, and, and what mattered in it? Well, the first thing that really mattered was that they had a good time. So yeah. it was about fun absolutely and the second thing that mattered was you know why did their parents send them to to play sport well it was really because they wanted them to be better people Mm. and you know i think that's why people pick rugby as opposed Mm. to some other sports because they believe in the ethos and the values of the Mm -hmm. sport um so they wanted them to be fitter and more confident and more respectful and happier we looked at um what was going to give us an edge what was going to be our magic and um uh, we decided that we'd play a really fast game, so we yeah. called it Lightning Rugby. Sweet. Um, so it's about moving the ball edge to edge. Um, it's about uh, when it's on, it's on, so mm-hmm. taking risks. Mm-hmm. Total chaos in, a, in attack. We play so fast that no one can live with us. Um, uh, order in defense, uh, but trusting the man outside you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I talked to um, Anton Oliver about the transformation in the All Blacks and one of the things that they decided to do, they called it pass the ball, Mm. but it was to say wherever you are on the pitch, if it's on, it's on. If you can see their space, it's on. And the fact that the guy outside you happens to be a proper or a hooker in Anton's case doesn't mean you don't pass the ball to him because, Mm. you know, there's an opportunity there and you need to trust the guy outside you. And when the All Blacks started doing that, what they very quickly discovered was that the prop and the hooker couldn't catch the ball and they couldn't pass it. So mm. they didn't have the skills to execute the game plan. So I already knew that the, the, the sort of approach that we were going to take would take a while for us to develop it because we mm. didn't have the skills or mm. the fitness to be able to play the game. But it was it was a, a sort of vision that we bought into. Um, around belonging, we, we, we went big on uh, no criticism, no criticism, no blame, no shame. Mm-hmm. Never giving negative criticism to an individual, only ever giving collective you know, critical um, feedback, um, always focusing on solutions as best we could, uh, being positive. Uh, we had a, uh, we adopted the All Blacks no dickheads policy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, and you know, the kind of language that teenage lads quite like. Yeah, for uh, sure. And with the, some very clear principles that sit sit behind it. Mm. Um, and, uh, and then it, that led into what was going to make us effective. So obviously that was stuff around handling and technique and stamina mm-hmm. and decision-making and so on. Yeah. And then the last element is what's our goal? And, and we talked about just playing beautiful rugby. So we never talked about the scoreboard. We didn't talk mm-hmm. about winning. We just said we want to play the kind of rugby that we would like to watch. Mm. Which is about attacking flair and and you know, um, Sonny Bill Williams offloads and, yeah, and all that love it. stuff. Yeah, the stuff your coaches always tell you never to do, but actually, no, that's wrong. <laughs> hey, hey, we need to learn. You know, if you're going to do it anyway, let's learn to do it yeah, well. Absolutely, let's, yeah. Let's practice it. Um, so, uh, how did that go? Well, in the first year, um, we I started off by putting some big blocks in. So we organised a tour. Um, under 15s is a good year to 
uh, you know, it's last touring year really because there's no major exams for them. Mm-hmm. So uh, we went on a tour to Ghent in Belgium. All right, sweet. Uh, we did fundraising around that. Mm. Um, some of the money that we raised, we gave to a charity. So we're starting to thinking about how does this connect with the story of being better people, mm. doing the right thing. Um, we got involved in a, a Memories Day. So there's a charity which um, uh, connects older people with um, young people um, uh, be, to talk about sport because mm-hmm. that um, is uh, beneficial for the older people. But of course, it's also beneficial for the young people too. Mm-hmm. Um, we had Christmas dinners and end of season dinners and those kind of things. So I put the big blocks in and yeah. we started coaching around how we wanted to play the game. And um, and we lost. <laughs> and we lost and then we lost and then we kept on losing. And we went through the season. <laughs> and at the end of the season, um, we, we'd won a few friendlies. But mm. um, in the games that mattered, we lost them all. So yeah. we, we, we were bottom of the league. We lost every game. And uh, some of them were close. But yeah. we still managed to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, <laughs> and um, and the way I would characterise the season is it started off with a kind of rejection. So, you know, I turn up, I say this is how I think we should do things, and I'm mm. gradually trying to establish these beliefs within the amongst the boys within the team, mm-hmm. and that's through having conversations. Some of it's formal, mm. some of it's informal. A lot of it's informal. Emails out to to parents, sending messages, um, uh, that kind of thing. But because I've got a plan, a consistent idea of what is the story that I want them to be able to say about the team, mm. you don't get deflected just because mm. there's a lot of pressure because you're losing. Yeah. So so I put the season into three phases. The first was rejection. They didn't believe that I would knew what I was talking about. Yeah. Um, they didn't really buy into it. Certainly not wholeheartedly. Um, uh, and certainly not some of the key players. Um, uh, then acceptance. So mm-hmm. in the acceptance phase, we started to do better. And then the last few months of the season, we started to perform. So yeah. by the time we went to tour, we were playing well. But the league had already finished. So 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 that was us done for the league. Mm. Um, but at the end of the season, we still managed to attract nine or ten new players. So that's cool. Um, so despite yeah. being the bottom team in the league, we, mm. we still were going. And I think everyone felt really good about the season. Um and um, so then we went into under 16s and actually we didn't get relegated because another team decided it wanted to drop down because it had lost some players, even though okay. it had won a few games, mm. they'd lost players. Uh, so we stayed in that top league. Um, we put again the big bits in. So, yeah. you know, we did pre-season boot camp and we did the dinner at it. So maintaining mm. this idea of socials and opportunities for people to talk to each other, but also there are opportunities for us to talk about culture and, and what we expect of each other. Uh, we went on a tour to Bath this time, mm-hmm. Christmas dinner, end of season dinner, um, and we started winning. So we started winning our league games. Mm-hmm. We were still, we, we were trying to pick tougher opposition for friendlies. So we were mm-hmm. still were experimenting a lot. So we were losing plenty of our friendlies, but in the games that mattered, we were starting to perform. And uh, so this, as under 16s, we went through the season undefeated, awesome, um, and and won the league. And and as that developed, actually, it was interesting how the uh, and you hear coaches talk about it a lot of that, that we as coaches, so I've got a group of guys who I coach with, that we were able to step right back mm. and add more and more and more responsibility over to to the players. Yeah, that's great. This identity had now created this kind of self-regulating culture mm-hmm. where they were all working really hard for each other. Um, and what was most telling is I, I, I don't think, I mean, I always think that um, 
attack is about talent and defense is about is about culture mm-hmm. uh, and um uh, in the uh, at the end of the season in the league we were the second highest um point scorer in attack um but our defense was so solid um we uh, i think we conceded 50% less points than the next wow. the next best uh, that's awesome uh, and and that was because actually the boys cared about it and they were prepared mm. to get back on their feet and you know 30 feet on the floor um getting back in line staying connected working hard in defense uh you can't you, it doesn't matter how much you coach around the techniques you, it, it's that effort that, that makes it yeah um so so the the lads were doing that um we introduced a few other things so we started using huddle for video analysis mm-hmm. so we video our games mm. and i saw um something that Blackburn Rovers uh, football team have been doing. So they've been using Huddle and um, uh, all the pl- all the play analysis was done by the players. Yeah. So we started doing that. So mm-hmm. again, it's around empowering them to what do they look at? What do they want to develop? How should the game change? What plays are we using that work? It's up to you. You're mm-hmm. the guys on the pitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. You, mm-hmm. you decide what, what you want to play. So they, they could start to look at that. Um, and uh, and uh, we we had two key games. So one was a game where we played the the, the team that had always beaten us for the previous well forever actually. I don't yeah. think we'd ever beat them before. <laughs> Perfect. They'd won the league for the previous four years, uh, and we beat them. And after that game, um, uh, the boys organised to go out to dinner together, mm. um, and everyone in the team went. Um, so self-organised, just going out to celebrate together. Mm. Um, and then uh, after we won the league, uh, which was against our local Derby team, which is a Derby match against Brighton, um, I was like it. Graham Henry talked about uh, when the All Blacks um, smashed the French 8-7 in the final of the uh, <laughs> World Cup 2011. It was just like that. We we smashed Brighton 5-0. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> uh, and so there were more celebrations after that. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, you know, I... It'd be interesting because I'm sure some of the boys will listen to this podcast uh, and they might disagree with it. But I think what's happened is that that team has developed this sense of identity, mm. which has had a big impact on the way in which they perform on the pitch, but also mm. their experience off the pitch. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we talk, uh, Saracens talk about making memories mm. and I'm a great one for borrowing other people's ideas so we also talk a lot about making memories so mm. you know win or lose how can you make sure this is a memory that they that they will always um have with them and, mm. uh, and i think we're we're doing quite well at that awesome well, it's a fascinating story and it's great to see it uh, all all be put in place from a from a kind of theoretical framework and background so um you know really really encouraging stuff and so much there for coaches to to grab for their their day-to-day work with their teams all right. Well, we we always end the each episode with the same final four questions. When you first got into rugby um, back in the day, who was who was one of the players that really uh, you know got you excited about the game? Yeah, back in the day, the you see the trouble is when I was when I was a kid growing up, starting to get into rugby, the only team that seemed to be any good was Wales, and I'm yeah, you know I'm a very passionate Englishman, so there were all these amazing Welsh players, yeah. and I couldn't I couldn't really select any of them, uh, but there was a guy, um, uh, a winger for England called David Duckham, who who okay. really stood out. Yeah, he was one of these characters who seemed to be able to change direction through a ninety degree angle without mm. slowing down. 
mm. uh, you know, whilst running flat out. Um, so he was he was just an incredible runner. Um, then uh, a bit further on, players like Peter Winterbottom mm-hmm. um, and then Mike Teague. Um, so I played in the back row uh, when, when I was playing. So players like that, real tough, um, hard, hard players. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, players like Jeremy Guskett. Uh, and then going up to, you know, 2003, um, you know, I often say that uh, the happiest days in my life has been, uh, uh, you know, when my kids were born, when I got married and, and when Johnny Wilkinson kicked that uh, that drop goal over the posts in 2003 to win the Rugby World Cup. So, you know, uh, any of those guys could uh, could get into my top list as well. <laughs> cool. Um yeah, we don't usually talk about 2003 on the pod, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that one. That's uh, your, your free shot there. Um, and what about now? What are, who are some of the players you like watching? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think the outstanding player, in, certainly in, in England and possibly in Europe of his generation, is Danny Cipriani. Yeah, um, You know, uh, there's. I, I understand why you might not put him into a team, but I think that it's a, you know, I think it's a big shame. And I yeah. think it's been a big shame for um england rugby that he hasn't got more caps for england yeah Um, but i just think you know the the way that that guy sees space and manages to create space for people around him is Mm -hmm. just unreal Mm -hmm. um so and i put in you know someone like bowden barrett i mean obviously you've got um uh uh dan carter um would would be in that category too but someone like bowden barrett i think is just always a joy to watch um faf de clerk yeah uh, just an outstanding example of someone. I don't know how tall he is, five seven, five yeah, eight, um, but just an incredible specimen. And he reads the game so well, and uh, uh, he, he's got amazing skills. So I always like watching him. Yeah. Um, and then I guess the sort of in the forwards of the up and coming players, there's a guy called Ellis Genge, yeah, who's yeah. a pop who I just think has got an amazing edge, mm-hmm. and he's got a great backstory as well. Yeah, yeah. I just like watching him play. He's got a lot of skill, and I think he's he's really developing. And uh, Tom Curry, um, mm-hmm. who's a, a open row, side, yeah. the open side that England need. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, just just a, a, an excellent player. Cool. All right. So, question: What about coaches? Who are some of the high-profile coaches? You you like what they the the way they they operate and what they're doing? Yeah, I was thinking about this, and rather than I'm um, just picking a single coach, I would go for a dynasty, and that would mm-hmm. be the All Blacks dynasty. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think it started actually with Wayne Smith. Yeah, absolutely. In, back in 2000. Yeah, uh, and I know that then, um, you know, he, he got sacked after a couple of games that didn't quite work out for mm-hmm. him. Um, but I think that he started something then. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then there was the the sort of glitch with uh, uh, John Mitchell, I think it was, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and then we went on to Graham Henry and and Steve Hansen, mm. and I just think that 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 to be able to sustain the level of success that they've managed to, to sustain is is quite exceptional. Yeah. And and for someone like Graham Henry, you know, Graham Henry used to be a school teacher. He was a headmaster, yeah. and in his early coaching days, he was he was a school teacher, right? Yeah, he was yeah. Out, authoritarian for sure. Authoritarian mm. coach, and he transformed himself. Mm. Um, 
you know, not always easily, but he transformed himself because he was really listening to the feedback of, of the players around mm. him and some, some experts. Um, and uh, and the glue that bound, has bound that whole dynasty together is um, Gilbert Anoka. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, yeah. Well, you'd be right on on his stuff too for sure. Yeah, and I think that I think you know, touching on um, you know, you mentioned Stuart Lancaster earlier in the interview, and um, just I think what what. New Zealand rugby did, which was incredibly gutsy uh, and showed some amazing foresight and faith, was to re-employ Graham Henry after the the disappointing Rugby World Cup, and they they were would have come under immense scrutiny for doing that. But but look at the results of what happened there, and I often I often think of you know England and if they re-employed uh, Lancaster, what would have happened as a result of that too. So. You know, it's uh, it's a it's a it's a fascinating parallel that one. Yeah, and we, we you know, um, uh, when we had our initial conversations, we were talking about Ben Darwin and his work in gain line mm-hmm. analytics mm-hmm. and looking at how length of tenure of players has a positive impact. But that's also true for the length of tenure of coaches. Totally. And so, what the All Blacks have had is a system which has been working through the whole of New Zealand rugby for uh you know 15 years now and you, mm-hmm. you really see that it sort of touches the youth system right the way up to to the um uh you know the full adult team and everyone is aligned around that story and and the story you know their identity story is is really clear and very compelling mm. and pretty yeah. much anyone in new zealand could tell you it yeah um so so i think that that has not happened through accident that's happened through determination yeah, absolutely. All right, and final question: uh, Who who are some grassroots coaches then that are you know flying under the radar that are out and about in your community that you feel deserve a bit of recognition and a shout out? Yeah, well, the, I mean, the guys I would name check are the guys that I'm coaching with. So yeah. we've got a we've got a, a small team. So we're going on to coach Colts next season. Wicked. Um, uh, and so that's Kip Wallace and uh, Bryn Garish and Ryan Morland. Um, and they're just, uh, and what's interesting is, you know, I think just as it's important to have a team um, of players and focus on the team of players, it's important to have a lot of trust in your coaching team yeah, yeah. Um, and to have different perspectives and, and you know, uh, to be able to bring different things and to, to value all of them. So that, you know, out of those guys, it ranges right down to, to some young guys um, who, who are still playing um, and, and are close in age to the, to the players right through to me, who's an old Kocha, um, <laughs> but uh, I would uh, I would definitely name check them, um, and then you know more broadly I think in um, uh, the UK, uh, so in England there's obviously people know about Rusty and uh, and Fletch, uh, so I think that what they're doing is really um, having a very positive impact mm-hmm. on the game yeah. more broadly and building some momentum. Um, there's a guy called uh, Rich Berry who. Um, I think is doing some really interesting stuff around relationships between coaches and, and players. Um, and, and I think that that's going to pick up momentum as well. Okay. Um, sort of stuff around duty of care. Um, and there's a guy called Richard Shorter who yeah, is, yeah. um, the non-perfect dad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I just think that's the other piece of the jigsaw puzzle. This, this, uh, you know, helping coaches to really uh, think about how they engage with um, uh, with parents and, mm-hmm. and looking at the whole package. Yeah. So, so I think those guys are having a, a positive impact. Okay. Well, want to say a massive thank you, Jeremy, for for coming on the show. Um, this is an area that I'm I'm fascinated in, and a lot of what you're talking about kind of resonates with uh, you know 
not only uh, what I do in my day-to-day coaching, but also experiences that, uh, you know, I had as a player. So, you know, I think uh, a lot of listeners will also get those kind of feelings as well. And I, I think, um, you know, a massive amount of information that, that we can use from this and definitely an area that I feel is underserved um, for, for coaches um, and something that, I think we can all work hard at it, at improving with every team we work with. So really want to say thank you for coming on the show and, and, and sharing your knowledge. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Cool. Awesome. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coaches Corner podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review via iTunes and keep listening for the next episode. You can also follow us via Twitter at RugbyCoachesCNR or via the website therugbycoachescorner.com. Until next time, keep sharing ideas to make the game better.